There's big news in the tax community. The G7 has come to a very landmark decision that will change the course of the global tax landscape as we know it, agreeing to a 15% global minimum tax. While it all still has a ways to go before becoming an official part of the global tax foundation, we're all left to wonder what would a global minimum tax even look like? Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Transfer Pricing Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And on today's episode, we're breaking down everything you need to know about the G7 deal and how multinationals can prepare for this new tax frontier. We're joined today by Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Director of International Tax Michael Simone. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. It's the tax news heard around the world. The G7 has agreed to back a 15% global minimum tax plan as proposed by the United States. In case you've been living under a rock, the G7 consists of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US, and meets semi-annually to discuss global issues. As if word of a global minimum tax wasn't enough of a bomb, the deal also seeks to tax 100 to 150 of the most profitable companies on where their goods and services are sold versus where the operation is registered. How much, you ask? At least 20% on profits over a 10% margin. What does this mean for multinationals? It's time to shape up or ship out. The OECD Inclusive Framework will discuss forward motion on the deal in Paris next month. The G7 news isn't the only deal-making headlines. The European Parliament and European Council have agreed to public country-by-country -country reporting. I'm going to give that one a moment of silence. Public disclosure would apply to multinationals operating in more than one EU member state with two years of consecutive consolidated revenue of over 750 million euros or $915 million. As for format, it would be submitted using an EU template and then electronically formatted for public consumption. Much to multinationals' dismay, it's not a one-size-fits-all report. Companies would publicly release their income tax innards for each member state they are operating, and if MEs are conducting business in an EU blacklist or graylist jurisdiction, you bet they're going to want to see that too. While it could take some time to implement into law, try 18 months, it's a step in the right direction for tax transparency. As for MEs, the stress dreams are just beginning. What do Savish and transfer pricing analysis have in common? They're both better when fresh. The Peruvian tax authorities released a guidance on multi-year data and where it fits in the transfer pricing equation. The guidance specifies that two-year or older data is acceptable for identifying comparable transactions, but cannot be used to determine arm's length pricing or preparing interquartile ranges. It also provides additional clarity on the compatibility analysis, specifically that taxpayers are allowed to use either the non-resident entity or the Peruvian entity as the tested party. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here right now with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Director of International Tax Michael DeSimone to talk about the G7 and their recent decision on the global minimum tax plan. I'll tell you, though, if these two folks are in the office talking about anything, I want to be a fly on the wall. So I'm actually going to hand things off to Mimi Song to lead this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. So Michael Simone, you've been in tax for 45 years, and no one would be able to guess that if they met you in person, right? <laughs> what do you consider the most revolutionary tax legislation that's been enacted in your illustrious career? Well, you know, that's kind of interesting because there's a couple of different acts that occurred over the years that people consider watersheds. I think probably the one that sticks out in my mind the most is really the 86 Act not because of anything specific within it, but because of so many things in it. And really, even the commentators were joking around about it because they thought it was such a really crazy act that they actually nicknamed the Accountant and Lawyers Full Employment Act. And it was one of those things where it's like, wow. yeah. Well, yeah, and plus, it, plus it renamed the uh, code. Before that, everybody was used to it as being referred to the 54 code. That was the last major codification. And that's why it was such a watershed event like that. It's a pretty Amazing. cool nickname for it, too. Now it's the 86 code. Right. You know, it's funny, though. Isn't there an expression that says, hey, let's just 86 it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard doesn't it as 86 mean... it or deep six it, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Like, doesn't that mean throw it out the window? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. The circular file, you know. <laughs> Got it. And we are... Hopefully, I think we see a light at the end of the tunnel with respect to the pandemic. I know you have still been relatively conservative staying at home, but what was perhaps the hardest thing to adjust to during this quarantine period? And has it changed the way that you deal with life? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting like that, because one part of it is that while I didn't go into the office on a very regular basis before, occasionally it was good to break up, you know, the day, that kind of thing. And it was good seeing people. And I think that that's really something that I kind of lost track of doing and would like to get back to doing with that. But you know something? That also represents the other side of the coin, too, because I'm not sure how we're going to get back to normal, what normal is going to look like, what right. the office interaction is going to look like. Well, I was in the New York office this past week, and it, it felt it felt pretty normal, to be honest. So <laughs> it was a little cool. bit... Yeah, going back to the original framework. But anyways, let's get to the meat of the conversation, right? The G7 consensus on global minimum taxation, or at least that's what the headlines say. 
let's break this down. What are the main issues that are being discussed? And, and perhaps even, you know, why is this such a paramount decision? Well, I think really the biggest issue that came out of this is that they seem to have reached an agreement that a global 15% tax rate for corporations should be enacted. And I think that that is kind of a watershed in its own right, because there's always been arguments in terms of who's doing what for whom, why are they doing it, and what's happening. And really, I think that that comes back to what uh, Janet Yellen was saying, that you want to avoid a race to the bottom. Like when you look at you know cases like Ireland at 12.5%, Hungary at 9%, people are sitting there saying, like, why are you keep lowering and lowering the rates? Because that's kind of an inverse arms race where everybody's trying to see how low they can go to attract others to come and set up operations in their jurisdictions on that. And that's one of the reasons why you look at it and say like, this doesn't make sense because eventually you're going to be driving yourself out of business on there. Now, quite honestly, there's a counterpoint to all of that. And that is where different economists have argued over the years as to whether or not corporations should even be taxed at all. The logic being a corporation is really an artificial entity that is then distributing its income, usually as dividends in that form, to their shareholders. Or they're using it to buy equipment, or they're using it to pay the interest on money that they borrowed. So really, why are we looking at this as really being a tax-paying entity? But that gets you into a kind of a philosophical argument as to, well, what is the nature of it? Why do they benefit from things? How do they, you know, benefit from society as a whole? And, you know, the metaphysical aspects of that kind of beyond really where I think we want to go with that. <laughs> that that goes beyond the point of discussion here, but but it is interesting that framework because if you look at the history of corporate taxation, I was looking at some data and based on the Office of Management and Budgets historical tables, the amount of corporate income taxes paid back then as a percentage of GDP was much more significant than it is today. Like you could see this this trend, right? So it's an interesting idea that's being brought to light. But when we go back to the topic of the G7, you know, let's start there. I mean, the G7, who is it? It's Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK and the US, right? And they actually met, I think, on June 5th, so just recently. And they've been talking about this idea of a global minimum tax for many, many years. And I think it's always been difficult to try to apply that, right, on a global basis and to get consensus here. What are the main concerns over this idea of a global minimum tax, especially when you think about it from a taxpayer perspective, Mike? Well, I think the taxpayers really have a whole lot of different issues with this. First and foremost, it really depends on the nature of what kind of business that you have as to whether or not you're going to have a significant impact on this. Now, depending on the type of operations you have, traditional brick and mortar, these folks really look at it from the point of view of this minimum tax possibly being a good thing because they exist in a lot of countries where there's a whole lot of different variations in the rates between the countries but they're still stuck there because of the nature of their business. For example, if you're making physical products like plumbing products, plumbing products share some disabilities. That is, they tend to be fragile, but they also tend to be large and heavy. So you really don't want to be shipping these things all over the place if you don't have to. 
And you tend to have a lot of plants then because, well, you need to be close to where your customers are. But you look at somebody like an Amazon or Google that really don't have a physical product and could be anywhere. So there's going to be a tension between, hey, listen, I could set up shop and do things, you know, through the web, wherever I want to, however I want to, versus, hey, listen, man, I'm making stuff out of porcelain, which is big, heavy, and fragile. I don't got that kind of latitude to just do what I want, wherever I want. And that's really where the tension lies, because how the physical dominated products are taxed has to mesh up with how the intangible of being anywhere and everywhere in the ether. Well, that's probably been the biggest challenge right now in that the tax code and the tax rules were not really set up with this new digital economy in mind. That is very true. And that really goes back to the basic thing of life. The law always has trouble catching up to how technology and societies evolve. Right. And that's really the problem that we're seeing here now on a massive scale. Because quite frankly, the Internet of Things is here. The opportunities that it presents are here. It's not something that's just limited to whatever is going to happen today. It's what's happening today and how it's going to be superseded tomorrow. It's kind of like Moore's Law. When you look at how he predicted that 18 months would be the life cycle, things would be you know, going twice as fast and half as expensive every 18 months. Even Moore's Law has been eroded. It's, you know, really outdated in the sense that it's happening a lot faster than 18 months. Interesting. Yeah. On the technology side. And that's really an area where people are up to date. When you come to laws, it takes a lot of people, a lot of effort to draft the law in the first place. Now, when you look at what they're talking about, just getting the rate at 15%, you're looking at 200 plus countries across the globe. Everybody has got to be in agreement on this. That's a really tall order. That's going to be, I think, one of the biggest challenges is really building up that global consensus. And we'll talk about why that is. But let's talk about the practical aspects here. What does that global minimum tax potentially look like? Just really simple example, right? Let's say a U.S. parent company has an entity in Ireland, right? I think the Ireland corporate income tax rate is 12.5%. So it's less than that 15% global minimum tax. So then if I'm that multinational, I'm the U.S.-based multinational, where am I paying that 2.5% top-up tax? Well, actually, that's going to be interesting because as a practical matter, even before you talk about the multinational, you kind of talk about Ireland. Ireland doesn't want to go to 15%. They're happy with the 12.5%. And so they're going to have pushback on there. And the reason why they're happy with it is because me, the multinational, has set up a lot of businesses over here. And guess what? That employs my people, keeps them in good jobs, well-paid, and they're happy. So I don't want to do anything to disturb that. Now, from me, the corporate point of view, I don't really want to give Ireland a 2.5% raise because I'm still happy with the situation I have over here. The same token, when you start looking at this, this is really where you're looking at pillar two from the OECD. How are you going to define the new rules for who's going to be taxable where and how are you going to measure that? And that's going to be the sticking point because even if everybody adopts a 15% rate, the question still comes down to, well, how do you divvy up what the income should be in each of these jurisdictions? And by the way, Ireland is now going to be sitting there saying like, wait a minute, you want me to raise my rate 
two and a half points to go up to 15, and you're going to be taking away income that I was taxing at 12.5%. So now I'm going to have a higher rate on less income. Why are you doing this to me? And the rest of the world saying, well, because we want uniformity on there. The G7 said that. Well, Ireland's point of view is like, well, that's the G7 saying that. You still got to have another meeting with the G20 to see if they're going to go along and start buying into this. And then after that, you got to get well, 180 other places to agree with it also. Think of it this way. If you were looking at this thing, it's kind of like a scenario on a dating show. Right now, with what the G7 has done, they simply have asked the other party for a date. But we still haven't figured out if it's going to be a dinner date, you're just going to go to a movie. And beyond that, if there's even going to be a second date and a whole other things that happen. <laughs> so that's a funny scenario in my mind. I'm trying to think like U.S. asking Ireland on a date. but <laughs> so Exactly. Interestingly enough. So let's take that scenario and just sort of play it out because let's say Ireland doesn't want to apply the 15% minimum tax, but the U.S. and everyone is going to apply a top-up tax to the M&E and say, well, it doesn't really matter. You have to pay that additional 2.5%. And now the U.S. is keeping it, right? Let's just play well, that like scenario right out. Now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's like that guilty tax that's being applied right now. So what does that do from a M&E tax strategy perspective? That's going to be the interesting point because that goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. How do you set the rules in place for deciding what's going to be taxable where. And that's really where you start getting into these other concepts, kind of like looking at it from, well, maybe it should just be not a question of looking at it as an income tax, but maybe having something like a gross receipts tax, or maybe we should be measuring income based on just gross receipts, whatever you're selling into any given jurisdiction. And that's really where you start getting into that next level of discussion on it. Who's doing what, where, and how are you putting your activities in place? And keep in mind, everything that we talk about, the impact on an m &E, is really based on how you can do tax planning. Tax planning as a concept only exists when you have differences in law. Because if everybody was playing by the same rule book, you'd have no opportunities for planning. And when you have 200 different playbooks being discussed right now, that's really the big question. How do these countries implement this thing? How do you actually look at what the calculation of income is going to be? How do you take into account differences in terms of what's going on and how it's going on? Like deductions, are they going to adopt standard ways of saying depreciation? Because there's a lot of variation in that. What are we going to do with intangible assets? Are we going to allow for amortization? If so, what kind of schedules are you going to allow on that? What's going to actually qualify for that? Again, these are all the questions that have to be asked in terms of setting up what the rules of the road are going to be. And that's a tall order. But to your point, isn't that the reason why the global community, or I, I should say the OECD and the G7 and, and all of the policymaking bodies if, and lawmakers are pushing for this concept of a global minimum tax and sort of redistribution of taxable rights right? Because they want businesses to avoid these tax planning schemes and they want them to consider establishing business operations without tax incentives in mind or tax strategies in mind. That's true, but it still goes back to the basic issue of how do you divide what's going to be earned in there and how it's calculated. Think of it this way. If you were to look at 
anemone is just having a bunch of different segments and you're computing the income in each segment, the question still comes down to what is that income going to be reflective of? And that's where you go into the tax policies that are involved, whether or not they allow for like a bonus type of depreciation, whether they allow for or don't allow for deduction of certain types of expenses. Just take the U.S. code. We've gone in situations where, you know, there are times when meals have been fully deductible, it's only 50% deductible, 30% deductible, no deduction whatsoever, back to allowing 100% deduction. You look at something like that and say, like, wait a minute, this is just whether or not if I take somebody out for a drink, if I can, you know, deduct the cost of that drink. Or when the most stringent fashion of it, if I have people that are working and pulling an all-nighter, if I can get them pizza. And, you know, it gets complicated from there because now you have 200 different places that are telling you whether or not pizza is deductible. You have 200 different places that tell you what way you calculate the income on there. And that's why. That's the two ends of it. One is looking at individual countries and what they're going to have a right to tax and how are you going to determine how much income flows into that. And is it going to follow local law or is it going to follow some topside standard definition of what income is and then have an apportionment factor going across all these jurisdictions? That's the question. We don't know what the rules are going to be like. And it sounds great in theory that we just need to have a uniform 50% rate, but a 15% rate of what? And that's the issue. What is that number that you're going to apply that 15% to and how is that going to be divided? You need to buy it from everybody. And I think that a lot of this came out ultimately, once again, let's bring it back to this idea of digital taxation. How do you tax the digital economy, right? So, so what does this agreement ultimately mean for purposes of the digital taxation of these other types of tech-based companies, cloud-based companies? companies that are really deriving a lot of value from intangible property. Sure, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. When you're like an Amazon or a Google, and you've got all of your stuff happening in the ether, it's not something that's tangible. Let's go back to my guy who's making plumbing products. Face it, when you make a sink, you know that you made the sink in a specific location. But when you talk about a digital tax, the guy's going to sit there and say, like, what digital? You got to go down to the plumbing supply and pick it up as opposed to, well, the internet of things with Amazon and Google being able to supply whatever you want, wherever you want it. And that comes down to this. What are you measuring with that digital tax? And can you avoid double taxation in going to the 15% rate and having a different uniform system of this? See, this is really where you get into that dichotomy of who's taxing what and how you're taxing it and how do you avoid double taxation on that? And that's the issue. On the one side, you have everybody who's worried about nowhere income. That's not quite nowhere, but just going to selected jurisdictions because of what they've enacted versus having a uniform way of having everything calculated and apportioned out so that everybody gets a piece of the pie on that. Think of it this way. When you look at a lot of the intangibles that we're talking about, a lot of them relate to different types of basically things that you can never touch. Like the Nike swoosh is the Nike swoosh. Everybody recognizes it. Everybody knows it. Yeah. But in practical terms, can you really reach out and touch it? No. And that's the issue. When you have a royalty that's based on something that's that kind of intangible on there, it's kind of hard to say what that means on a global basis on there. Right. And how right. you divide it. I think a lot of jurisdictions 
they had applied sort of this unilateral digital services tax measure, which had created an additional layer of complexity on top of those 200, existing 200 tax rules, right? So it did not mitigate the tax planning opportunities. It perhaps exacerbated it. And, and perhaps now this concept here, this construct of, of bringing countries together with global consensus is to eliminate those digital services taxes, unilateral measures, right? So. Well, ideally, if you adopt the 15% rate and a uniform system, for determining what income is, then you really should not have a digital services tax because now that's really entering into double taxation. Yes, to your point, agreed. I mean, clearly a historic time for global tax reform. This G7 announcement, I think is, it's to your point, Mike, it's the initial ask, let's go out on a date, right? Let's, we're asking all the different countries, let's go out on a date. But I think the challenge is, Who's going to pay the bill at the end of it? Is everyone going Dutch? And are they going to split it evenly? Or are they actually going to figure out everyone's reasonable share of the bill, right? So I mean, we might figure out if we're going out for pizza or a movie yet. And you're worrying about <laughs> how we're going to split the bill? Come on. That's true. So how can multinationals effectively prepare for this potential movement of this G7 consensus, right? How how should they be preparing for it? Well, right now, a lot of companies are really looking at this and saying, gee, where do I benefit? Where do I suffer a detriment from it? And quite frankly, that's going to vary because there's so many different rules in place on it right now. Companies that are really in favor of this type of approach are like the Googles and the Amazons and Facebook, those guys, because this is going to give them certainty in terms of what they're doing or where they're doing. Because quite frankly, they're the most at risk for double taxation. Well, I was going to say, I think those U.S. tech titans are ultimately the companies that are sort of being targeted by this. And yet the general sentiment seems to be that they're on board with it. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So we know Amazon has welcomed this concept of the G7 consensus on global minimum tax, saying it, quote, brings stability to the international tax system. Even Facebook is on board. I think it was Nick Clegg, Facebook's VP of Global Affairs, said, quote, we want the international tax reform process to succeed and recognize this could mean 
Facebook paying more tax and in different places. Even Google supports it, calling it, quote, balanced and durable. Well, yeah, because think of it this way. It gives them certainty in two different fashions. To begin with, if you end up with a digital services tax, you're subject to a lot of different interpretations of what's going to be taxable and where. And you have the second whammy that it's going to lack uniformity in what that rate should be. And that's the problem for them. They don't want to be subjected to a situation where they have X number of countries with Y different rates, number of different rates taxing them. And at the same token, still be in other set of circumstances where it's based on a traditional income model, where they're not really taking into consideration anything that's happening in terms of the digital side of it, in terms of the tax bill there. So there's always the question that if you've got that kind of mixed bag on there, that there's a lot of possibility for double taxation on there. So perhaps the level of certainty is that much more valuable to them, especially given that right now, with them being challenged in all these different jurisdictions, ultimately leads to double taxation, more controversy, and then even reputational damage, right? Oh, of course. Actually, you go back to even before we had all of this stuff, Starbucks took such a beating in the UK because of what happened in Parliament, where you know, a member of Parliament called on HMRC and said, hey, wait a minute, what's the story with Starbucks? Well, how much tax do they pay? And it was something like 15 or 18 years that they didn't pay any income tax. And yet this MP was sitting there saying, look, I cannot go to my local Starbucks without having to stand in a queue for at least five minutes to place an order. How can there be so many people in front of me waiting to buy coffee that these guys have never made a profit in 15 years? And after that, you noticed how they said, no, no, we're going to reverse our posture and we'll pay a fair tax. Again, the same type of issue is going to come up on there. What are your operations, how you have them structured, and what are you going to be subject to tax on? And how is that going to be measured? Right. Social implications and that reputational damage clearly also impacts the bottom line. Oh, without a doubt. Because Starbucks obviously has a conscience about it. They do not want to be perceived as being, oh my God, we're a big bad tax evader. No, we want to be the place in your neighborhood where you come in and you feel comfortable being here and being part of the Starbucks family on that. And that counts for something. It counts for a lot in their eyes. Seriously, I think the media has ultimately helped create a ripple effect throughout the tax community with these tax giants, like sort of highlighting the challenges. I don't know if they're challenges, but the benefits that Amazon, Facebook, and Google and Starbucks have been able to take advantage of in some people's eyes, right, with respect to tax arbitrage situations. But I think it has highlighted that clearly the current tax system is not necessarily working out very well, right? M&Es will need to think about their existing policies, agreements, think about assets, risks, where value is created in anticipation that we're talking about a global tax regime where now profits are not going to be limited to taxation based on a physical presence anymore. That is true. That's really one of the issues where it's actually turning around somewhat. The biggest example of that is Amazon. Amazon itself was the internet of things that you didn't need to actually have physical stores. So what's happening? 
Well, retail locations are falling. But if you pick up the paper on any given day, you'll see Amazon is putting up another distribution center in such and such a jurisdiction. Why? Because whether or not you go to the mall to go pick up you know, a shirt or it's being delivered by Amazon, that has to be somewhere in the distribution center. And that highlights the need that physically you're selling goods. You have to get them from point A to point B. You've got to get them from a manufacturer to the final customer. And in between is the Amazon warehouse now. So while it displaces certain retail types of establishments, it's also creating huge warehouses to accommodate everything that is being sold through the Internet of Things. And that's the funny thing about it. It's really creating a paradigm shift in what employment looks like and where things are going to happen. And when you look at what's happening to traditional retail on that, you'll see so many different malls are being repurposed where you're finding out that a mall that used to have, you know, three different anchors that you recognized immediately, like a Sears or a JCPenney or whoever, are now having apartments that are attached to a gym that's located there. That's also being serviced by a grocery store that never would have been in a mall, but now is going to be there because the apartments are there. And it's easy to get food to people that way. And it's kind of amazing how this is going to transform what the entire landscape looks like. Right. Well, strangely enough, based on the current tax rules, Amazon, one of the reasons I convinced my husband to move to New Jersey at one point in our lives was because when we ordered from Amazon, because of the existing tax rules, and this was before they had a distribution warehouse in New Jersey, we didn't have to pay tax on products in New Jersey. But that was because of the antiquated tax rules, right? being applicable if they had a distribution center there. Well, now that's sort of a moot point to your point. There are many more distribution centers that they're having to set up to be able to accommodate and facilitate their customers more rapidly, but it still doesn't change the fact that they are able to reach a customer, let's just say, in Egypt, where they may not have a distribution center, right, in Egypt or a taxable presence, in that particular country because of the way that the tax rules are set up today. Now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen actually considers this current country competition for lower tax rates, the whole race to the bottom, an existing harmful dynamic. How will this new agreement transform the current tax environment for multinationals and for all these global jurisdictions? Well, that goes back to part of what you were saying just now. It's really a question of what your rules are going to be and how well it's going to be enforced. And that's really the bigger issue in terms of everything with any kind of distribution on there. The closest parallel that we have right now on the state side was with the Supreme Court ruling a couple of years ago on Wayfair, where they got rid of what the rules were that they'd established in both Quill and National Bellatesse. Because as a practical matter, they had set up rules for sales tax as to who had an obligation to collect it and remit it, and the physical presence test that was required before. And that's overruled with Wayfair, because it takes into consideration the fact that Wayfair isn't something that's got a place in every place in the world. And because they're selling into all these places, they should still have that obligation on that. The same thing is going to happen on the international level, looking at what the rules are and where things are going to be lodged and how they're going to be lodged. 
for a multinational, it's going to be looking at it from a point of view of, well, what do I physically need in there? Can I get away with just relying on FedEx being over there? Do I have to have distribution centers in certain key locations? And how then are my distribution centers going to be organized and treated in that jurisdiction? And that goes back to the race to the bottom that we're talking about, because the biggest fear that the G7 had in looking at this overall 15% rate is that you don't get a country that says, hey, listen, come to my jurisdiction. We'll go use Hungary because they're a 9% rate. I'm pretty much centrally located in terms of reach between China, Russia, and most of Western Europe. So set up a distribution center over here. I'm only going to tax you at 9%, but you're going to be bringing in X number of people that are doing a lot of things physically, having jobs in the warehouse, in the offices, making sure everything's getting processed correctly, orders are fulfilled, IT folks. So it's going to be a good mix of blue-collar and white-collar jobs that you're bringing to me. So I'm willing to give up some income taxes to bring people jobs here. And when people have jobs over here, there's a counterparty to this because now I have my equivalent of social security that I'm collecting from them. I have my regular income tax that I'm going to collect from them. So there's a benefit to me and they're going to be spending money and, you know, ordering lunch, whatever, buying cars to get back and forth to work. So that's going to help my economy locally over here. And that's why that's part of that race to the bottom where you're trying to avoid that, where they create these artificial incentives to try and attract some activity to them to create that local kind of activity in there. But what about the tax haven jurisdictions, right? When we think about the Cayman Islands or Bermuda, and and not to put them on the spot here, but... (laughs) Why not? Everybody else does. (laughs) That's true. BVI. You know, these tax havens, right? And and they understand that they're tax havens with the 0% corporate tax rate. And I think that the attraction here or the, the what, what they wanted to do is essentially be able to derive some revenues by having corporations set up shop there locally. But it's not as if the land area, the country in and of itself, is so massive to attract more actual companies with a physical presence in those jurisdictions, right? And really, the benefit of those jurisdictions was where under a traditional income tax system, you're having activities that are quote-unquote based there that draw income to there and inside of tax-favored rate or a no rate. The idea behind it is that you're locating things like a royalty shop there or an IP shop in there where you're going to get paid by these different companies and the different countries they're in, generating a deduction in Italy or France or wherever and having the income come to Bermuda or Cayman or whoever. Now, the question comes down to, if I've got a zero income tax rate, and I'm promising you that you can come over here and keep that 0% tax rate, how do I get money out of you? Well, there's a couple of different ways that they do it. As a practical matter, a number of these jurisdictions just collect like a flat rate per year for your being there, whether it's 10,000, 25,000, whatever that case may be. In other cases, you may end up paying something kind of like on a Delaware model, where Delaware doesn't tax you, per se, on the income, but on the number of authorized shares that you have out. out. If your charter calls for 1,000 shares, it's some certain rate. If it's 100,000 shares or a million shares or whatever, billion shares, 
you're paying taxes based on those shares. So there's different ways for them to raise revenues that don't involve actually looking at either your sales or your income. Right. And ultimately, if there is a global minimum tax and there's no benefits to setting up shop in those jurisdictions, I think it it definitely creates a landscape where they will lose out in this situation. Then companies will say, well, there's no reason for me to have this P.O. box in the Cayman Islands, right? <laughs> so. Exactly. And that's a matter of fact, one of the things that they're concerned about, because those countries really do come up short in this kind of process. There's no way that they're going to actually be able to sustain themselves because there's no reason for their existence in that scheme. And quite honestly, these are some of the people that are going to be fighting that scheme precisely because they don't want to be put out of business. Of course, and some of the developing countries or countries where perhaps the main source of GDP is from tourism, right? As opposed to the corporate establishment. Oh, sure. In fact, a lot of developing countries may not want to go along with this anyway, because as a practical matter, a lot of them rely on extractive industries to actually generate the revenues. Think of it this way. If your only major attribute is oil or copper or iron, the way that you raise money is real simple. For every ton of ore that you take out, you owe me X amount of dollars. Whether you make or lose money, quote unquote, inside my local jurisdiction, I don't care. As long as you're digging something up and shipping it out of here, I'm making money. And you're providing jobs for my people because obviously it's not the guy who's sitting in you know, country Z course, the pond that's actually doing the digging over here. It's the locals that are doing the digging. And that goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Whether you're setting up a distribution center where you're providing local jobs or you're in the extractive industry and you're providing jobs. It's just the question how you're going to measure that income on there. Now, sure. with this 15% rate and the question of the division of income on there, if I'm in the extractive industries, I'm worrying about what's happening in these developing countries where I'm extracting minerals wait a minute, I'm already paying per ton over here. Now you want a piece of the action at 50% of what? And that's really going to be the question from their point of view. How do I avoid getting double taxed in that fashion? Yes, yes, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, what aspects of the tax landscape you think will not change, will essentially stay the same, even in light of this idea of a global minimum tax and and the change in the thought process of what creates a taxable presence, right, beyond the physical? Actually, I think everything in tax is going to change because, quite frankly, there's so many different interrelationships. Like we just talked about with that extractive industries thing. Mm -hmm. How do you, you know, separate out of this thing? Do you then get rid of all of these arrangements that are really cast as royalties on extraction of the minerals? How do you look at it, go back to uh, the distributor that we were talking about in Hungary? and what their activity is, and looking at whether there's a local p over there or not. Or if I'm just relying on FedEx, how is FedEx going to be engaged accordingly on that? Are we going to do it based on the number of packages? Like, is there a flat rate per package or per weight of package, as opposed to the 15% rate? I don't know. I don't, those are some of the questions that have to be addressed within this. Sure. And what about intercompany dealings? Ultimately, on an intercompany basis, do you think companies will perhaps have to think about, you know, how do they create more of an entrepreneurial model in every jurisdiction as opposed to a transfer pricing policy or framework, right, with the hub and spoke model, for example, just because 
of the tax rule landscape and maybe there's no benefit to setting it up that way anymore? Well, actually, that's an interesting point because if you think about it, one of the things when you look at it like a residual profit split among different entities over there, each part of it will always tell you that they are the entrepreneur, that they are the ones who deserve the outside benefit. And they generate that outsized income because of their unique contribution on that. And you know as well as I do, everybody down to the guy who's emptying the waste paper baskets tells you that they're hero in this action. And they're being dragged down by all these other bozos that are holding them back. And that's the same kind of argument that you get over here. If everybody goes to an entrepreneur model in each jurisdiction, how do you show that each one of them is really an entrepreneur and that deserves a better return, a better whatever? Well, yeah, I mean, as an entrepreneur, though, what countries are going to have to realize is, sure, that means you're going to have to be ready for the losses and profits, right? You can't have just the upside without the downside. You haven't spoken to many government people, have you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they follow the old basic kind of a logic from Abbott and Costello. Heads I win, tails you lose. You want to toast the coin now? <laughs> And what role do you think COVID-19 has played in this deal-making process? Do you think it actually had an impact to helping the G7 achieve this paramount consensus? I'm not sure if I would use the word helping. Yeah. The word I would substitute for there is scared them. Because quite frankly, COVID laid bare all of the different ways value chains can break down. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about it today. Go look at used car lots. Go look at new car lots. Right now, new car lots are emptying out. Why? Because they can't get chips to actually produce all the cars they want to produce. Same token, a lot of other things in the value chain that people have in their supply chains have broken. You couldn't get screws for different components at one point. You couldn't get whatever. All of these things laid bare the idea. There's a basic fallacy in terms of just-in-time. Just-in-time as a concept really means I don't want to order anything until I'm ready to plug it into something else. Well, the problem is when you have countries, entire regions shut down and you can't get, you know, a mosquito out of there, heck with the parts that you need, all of a sudden, even though you don't have a problem, you now have a problem. And I think that's why scared is the right word for what happened with the G7, because they're seeing the ripple effect of how something goes, you know, flat in one place that it affects everything else. You know, it's like the old joke about a butterfly flapping its wings and then ultimately causing a hurricane. This is what we saw. That butterfly didn't flap its wings and you didn't get the rest of the stuff that you were expecting to be carried in on those, you know, trade breezes or whatever on there. And that's the problem. They're trying to now adjust and see what things are going on, how things are going on. Companies right now are actually looking at splitting up arrangements that they've had in place for years. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you can't have all your eggs in one basket. We yep. saw the basket crash and we're now having scrambled eggs, but nothing else. I do love some scrambled eggs, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to make anybody hungry. My apologies. No. What are the next steps here, right, in terms of sort of moving forward from this G7 meeting outcome and agreement? I think the OECD inclusive framework, which is over. I want to say over 140 countries right now, right? They're going to be meeting in Paris at the end of June. The G20 is expected to meet 
in July. So what do you think the next steps here are? Well, I think what's going to happen in all of these meetings is that there's going to be a lot of people trying to figure out what is going to be, quote unquote, the ideal solution. Because quite frankly, there's going to be a lot of different opinions on the table. And we've outlined a lot of what they're going to be talking about. Who's going to be doing what? Who's going to have a right to tax what? Where things are going to be defined as having operations? And honestly, that is going to be an extraordinarily interesting time. Because ultimately, when you have all of these people sitting there and talking through all of this, it's going to be really tough to see who comes up with what answers, who's willing to compromise on it. And that's going to be the key issue. How do you achieve consensus and compromise without shortchanging anybody too badly? But somebody is going to lose to a certain extent somewhere. Right. The question is, how do you mitigate that? I agree. And I think, you know, this is part of the reason why before the change in the U.S. administration, there was a little bit of pushback on this concept because the U.S. had originally considered itself to be a potential loser in this type of situation, right? That is true. In point of fact, the prior administration really looked at it from the point of view that everything had to be a win. If I don't have a win in my column, that is a disaster. Right. The matter is that no man is an island, as the saying goes, and no country is an island. People are interrelated. And I think that that goes to your point about the fact of the pandemic impacting companies on a global basis and seeing this intertwining of all these businesses and how everybody on a global basis was impacted, right? Like there's an interdependency within all these different countries. Everybody is bringing something to the table in, in effect and multinationals are able to operate on a global scale now because of the digitization of the economy and because of technological advancements, right? So while it may be an uphill battle to get global consensus and cooperation as well as future potential enforcement related to this concept of a global minimum tax, clearly this announcement was a landmark announcement and it demonstrates at least the willingness to play ball here or, you know, to go out on a date, to your point, Mike. And so we know M&Es will have to pay more attention than ever with regard to the international tax landscape. So I appreciate your perspective, Mike. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure being here. And I think really the point you just made is really the key issue. M&Es are going to be looking at what they're doing, where they're doing it, how they're supplying things, and how to insulate themselves from future shocks like this. Maybe having everything in a single plant in you know, country A is not the best idea. Maybe I need two plants or four plants. And that's going to complicate what we're talking about in terms of that universal 15% rate and how you're going to calculate income and expenses in these jurisdictions. And how are they going to go along with it? And how's that going to fit in with Pillar 2 so that everybody else is being treated fairly in there? There'll be a lot of negotiation. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Michael DeSimone for a very exciting round of my favorite part of the show. We call it What We Want to Know. It's just a kind of a fun round of questions that are a little bit more personal. Sometimes they go into transfer pricing, but the point is to get to know our guest a little bit better. And of course, that guest in the hot seat today is Mr. Michael DeSimone, Director of International Tax here at Cross Border Solutions. Always question one, Michael. Are you ready? Oh, sure. Excellent. Question number two, if you could go back in time to the start of your tax career, what piece of advice would you have liked to receive? Actually, I think the only piece of advice that I think I would have probably listened to anybody telling me at that time was to keep a good sense of humor about it, because you'll find out that there's going to be a lot of times when things really seem kind of absurd, and you just have to be able to roll with the punches on it. I mean, it's probably the most essential advice that I could have given myself back then. Back then, I was a little bit more strident in trying to achieve an answer on things. I was a little bit more, shall we say, determined as opposed to stubborn and trying to express a point of view on that. It's kind of like you're chasing you know, a parked car and you get a flat nose from it because the cars ain't going to move, but you can catch up with it real quick. And you really don't want to chase that parked car, you know? It does take a very different agent of chaos to chase a parked car, Michael. Who would you want to play you in a movie about your life? Oh, God. I think that's probably either Robert Duvall or Robert De Niro. I think both of those characters have the sufficient gravitas to pull it off. For the mustache, Mike, I'm going to go with Duvall. What are three work-related items you can't live without? Well, I think that probably the interaction with my colleagues... I love getting into discussions with them. I love the idea that we have a very good group that is very cooperative among ourselves as a group. The fact of the matter is that if somebody knows something, that they share it readily, that they're never recalcitrant about it, that they're always that willing to help out, to willing to contribute to the entire process on that. I think that some of the other things that we've uh, developed in-house are really essentials also because of our way of doing things, that kind of camaraderie on there. The one thing more than anything else that I was told is no longer an option until things rectify themselves with the COVID situation is that they have really put the coffee pot off limits. Cannot exist without my coffee. So putting the coffee pot off limits, uh, that's going to have a definite deleterious effect on my output and performance. If anything else, just being able to have good access to good Wi-Fi connections. Because quite frankly, you know, I saw somebody in one of the ads saying that people on average today spend seven hours a day on the internet. Honestly, I think the virtually all of my waking hours are pretty much on the internet. And having a good connection is essential to that, to working with everybody, 
to being able to communicate. Because you got to remember also, some of the folks that I touch base with are literally six, seven, eight thousand miles away on a regular basis. But I'm just so accustomed to being able to call them through Teams and saying, hey, Hasker, got a minute? I want to talk over something or Pamesh or Melina or whoever it may be. And so, you know, without having that kind of access, I think it could really put a big crimp in my style. I might argue I might not need Wi-Fi if you're around, Michael, just as a resource of, of endless knowledge. Uh, what are you looking forward to doing this summer that you couldn't do this time last year? I think probably the biggest thing that I'm looking forward to is just going down the shore. It's one of those things that you just kind of miss because, you know, being a Jersey guy, I'm used to being down the Jersey shore, Atlantic City, Seaside Heights, just, you know, the interaction with people on the boardwalk. It's just a fun thing that I miss. It's the little things that we have to be thankful for. And we're thankful for you, Michael, being on this show. We're thankful to everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Stay safe out there, folks. Use your judgment, get vaccinated, and we'll see each other very soon. Catch you next week. 